Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hi, I'm Toby Young, one of Quillette's London-based editors. Last week, the Conservative philosopher Sir Roger Scruton was fired as an advisor to the British government after giving an interview to a left-wing magazine in which he made a number of supposedly offensive remarks about China, George Soros and Muslim immigration to Hungary. I visited Sir Roger at his farmhouse in Wiltshire and asked him about these comments, as well as the implications his firing has for intellectual freedom more widely. Last week you were sacked from your job as chairman of Building Better, Building Beautiful, which was a commission established by the government to improve the design of new homes, villages Mm. and towns. How was the news of your defenestration conveyed to you? I um, was coming back from Paris where I was giving an interview on a French edition of one of my books, France Culture. Got onto the Eurostar and rang home to see how everything was and was told then by Izzy, my secretary, that, that this had happened. And um, that was it. I, I, w- I didn't receive any official notification later. Um, and nobody's ever told me the reasons why. There have been all kinds of things said, but that's rather different. Did, did they at least contact Izzy first to try and notify her that the government was about to make this announcement so you wouldn't hear about it over the airwaves or well, on Twitter? if they did, I didn't know that. OK. Um, so ostensibly, the reason you were sacked is because... In an interview with George Eaton, the Mm. political editor of the New Statesman, which is a left-wing weekly, you made comments that were, according to a spokesman for the Prime Minister, quote, deeply offensive and completely unacceptable, Mm. unquote. So there were four comments that appear to have sealed your fate, all of them published by George Eaton in a Twitter thread two days before the interview appeared on the newsstands. And I'd like to take each of them uh, in turn, if possible. So the first was about George Soros. Uh, You said, uh, and this was the quote that um, George Eaton put on Twitter. I don't know whether it was taken out of context or not. You said, anybody who doesn't think that there's a Soros empire in Hungary has not observed the facts. Mm. And according to your critics, regardless of the extent of Soros's commercial and charitable activities in Hungary, you must have been aware when you said that and used the phrase Soros's empire that you were trafficking in an anti-Semitic trope, portraying Soros as a sort of typical mm. Jewish puppet master. Um, what do you say to that? Well, uh, it's false. Uh, I mean, he has a big empire of, uh, of NGOs and um, institutions the human rights type institutions and, of course, the Central European University, which are largely devoted to um, undoing the work of the Hungarian government in trying to protect itself from mass migration and absorption into the 
in, into the uh, whole melting pot that Europe is becoming. And because he is ideologically very, very convinced that the open society requires open borders, and this for the Hungarians is unacceptable. Uh, and um, the institutions that he's founded there, he does certainly use in, in order to promote this goal. And you weren't concerned that using the phrase Soros's empire, you were, in a sense, giving intellectual cover, a kind of legitimacy to anti-Semites who use that phrase with a different agenda. Well, uh, you know, I made it absolutely clear in my original remarks that this has nothing to do with the anti-Semitism agenda, I, I expressly said, this was in Hungary when I was talking about the nation and nationalism, that, that Hungarian Jews are rightly, many of them, rightly suspicious of nationalism because of what they've suffered from. Mm -hmm. Maybe I, I didn't use the exactly right words that I should have used, but I tried to say that, that, you know, that, that there is this huge conflict that is coming to the surface again. I'm, you know, I mean, how careful does one have to be? And lots of people have empires of influence, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, and um, only if you explicitly say that these are, they have this empire of influence because they're Jews can you possibly have, have been taken to have made an anti-Semitic remark, you know. Uh, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, Soros's interests are as a Hungarian, not as a Jew, in, in all this Mm -hmm. political matter. And you, um, you've stuck up for the Central European University um, yeah. and intervened with um, Orban to try and dissuade him from trying to close it. Yeah. Yes. I, I mean, I, when he started this, I made a big effort and went to Hungary, more or less especially to try and see him and made the case, saying it was very bad for Hungary to close this down and also bad for the, the, the international network which is growing in the university world, which is now including Hungary largely thanks to the Central European University, and he should be proud of this. didn't make any difference, and that's true. Although he did at, at the time say, yes, well, I'll, I'll give this serious thought, and I think it's going to be okay. Mm. You know? Your second remark that I think the Prime Minister was referring to as offensive and unacceptable was allegedly a racist reference to Chinese people. And we do know now that this was taken out of context, but what George Eaton in his Twitter thread on last Tuesday quoted mm. you as saying was, each Chinese person is a kind of replica of the next one, and that is a very frightening thing, unquote. And your critics say you were invoking a racist stereotype about Chinese mm. people, that they all look and behave the same. Yeah. There's a phrase missing from the quote, yes. in which I point out that this is what the, gov the Chinese government is trying to make them. And I was arguing about, as I explained in my reply, about the robotization mm -hmm. of Chinese society by the, by the Communist Party. And anybody who, hasn't, who denies that also has not observed the facts. I can't, I can't see what you can do about this if, if, people, if people want to read into it some kind of racist demonology, then they can. That's their problem. Your third sin was to describe Islamophobia as a propaganda word invented by the Muslim Brotherhood in order to stop discussion of a major issue. Mm. 
and your critics would say that even if even if that's true, uh, Islamophobia is nonetheless real in that some people do suffer from an irrational fear of Muslims. And by describing Islamophobia as a propaganda word, you were effectively saying that no such irrational fear exists. And this brings us to your fourth comment, which George Eaton tweeted out, uh, whereby you compounded this impression, at least in the eyes of your critics, by adding that the electoral success of Orban uh, was due to high levels of Muslim immigration. And you said, quote, the Hungarians were extremely alarmed by the sudden invasion of huge tribes of Muslims mm. from the Middle East. And people took particular exception, or your critics took particular exception to your use of the word tribes, which they claim suggests that mm. Muslim migrants are primitive, even dangerous, and that you were, in effect, being Islamophobic, both by mm. denying that there was such a thing or that we should be concerned about Islamophobia and by using the word tribes to describe mm. large numbers of Muslim immigrants. In retrospect, it was probably it was a mistake to use the word tribes, although, of course, uh, the Middle Eastern Muslims do belong to a tribal culture, um, and that's how you know, they divide into sects in that way. Um, and I don't see anything wrong with that. Uh, there were, I was referring to the fact, you know, there were something like 350,000 illegal immigrants suddenly rushed into Hungary, with, in a pop, which has a population of 11 million. It's not surprising if they felt that they were being invaded. And that was what I was trying to point out, is that Viktor Orban's policies were partly a response to that fact. He couldn't do nothing, you know, and the Hungarians wanted him to affirm their national identity against this. And it was, uh, and of course, Merkel's, Merkel's invitation to people to come into Germany was extremely destructive for Hungary because that was the way they came. What about the idea that Islamophobia has been essentially confected for propaganda purposes mm. and that there's not re and that people in the West and elsewhere don't really suffer from an irrational fear well, of Islam? We have a lot of irrational fears. Some people have irrational fears of, of, um, of Christianity and so on. The point that I would make is that the word phobia suggests some pathological condition rather than a reasoned response. And um, what is needed in this issue is a reasoned response. And that means listening to people who reason in such a way as to come up with the other conclusion, opposite conclusion to yourself rather than dismissing them with a name, with a word like that. We all want to know whether the crimes committed in the name of Islam are themselves, in some sense, a result of that faith. And that's a, a proposition we have to entertain and question. And that, uh, you, the use of the word Islamophobia in, in the media has been largely to shut up that discussion. And you have praised um, aspects of Islam in the past. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm a very tender towards it, if you like. All human beings have a hunger for a religion and a desire to submit to something which, which, which uh, pacifies our relations with others. And Islam has been brilliant at that. And that's met the message that the problem is uh, that it doesn't its peacemaking qualities aren't easily transportable from one place to another and certainly not when it's transported into a community or 
political system which isn't based on faith and submission. And um, this is something that I think people need to discuss. In the old Ottoman Empire, there were many institutions and attempts to reconcile an overarching Muslim faith with all the sects which di diverged from it. It wasn't always successful, we had to recognize, but the survival of all those Christian communities until recently was uh, proof that it could work. But uh, it's very different when a, a Muslim community exists as a minority within another, perhaps entirely secular, uh, uh, civil order. Then the great question is, how does, the, how does Islam adapt to that? And that is the question we all have to discuss, and we have to recognize that you know, name-calling is no help. After you were sacked by the government, George Eaton, the New Statesman journalist who'd interviewed you, published a photograph of himself on Instagram, uh, drinking champagne from the bottle, with the tagline, quote, the feeling when you get right-wing racist and homophobe Roger Scruton sacked as a Tory government advisor, mm. unquote. Do you think it was a premeditated hit job? And, and was giving an interview to George Eaton and the New Statesman foolish in retrospect? It was foolish in retrospect. I, um, it was arranged by my publisher because I'm, it's my 75th birthday. They wanted to, to publicise. They reissued three of my books. And uh, that's why I accepted the interview. I thought, OK, yeah, of course I'll give an interview to the New Statesman. I respect the journal because I wrote for it for many years as wine critic. But, of course, this young man who seemed perfectly reasonable um, but was only there to record everything I said in order to, f to extract the uh, da damning words um, had another agenda. And it was clearly the whole thing was malicious. And those words that he uses, you know, a right-wing, what was it, racist, um, homophobic, those are in themselves slanderous. And proof of the malice of forethought, which, which, should this case ever come before a court of law, will be very hard to, to get round. And are you thinking of going to law about this? Yeah, I'm thinking of it. So with the exception of your comment about the Chinese Communist Party, uh, you'd said all of these things before, and they were all invoked by your critics who tried to get the government to sack you last November yeah, yeah. when you were appointed. Why do you think your critics were successful this time, but not in November? I, a lot, it has a lot to do with the um, Brexit trauma. I think the government is incredibly sensitive to the fact that it might be you know, subjected to a new load of criticisms. And um, it has manifestly failed to, to deliver what uh, it promised to deliver to the people. And I think, um, therefore, it's highly sensitive. Do you think that um, the anti-Semitism scandal in the Labour Party is also a factor? Because the way Labour have tried to deflect criticism yeah, is to accuse the Conservative Party of being Islamophobic. I think that's right. I think that has happened. Um, my own view is that, that the, the Conservative Party is not particularly down on Islam or on Muslims generally. There is undeniably a huge suspicion and an apprehension in the people um, about what Islam actually means in the modern world and it isn't surprising given the, the, the Manchester bombing and all the other things that, um, that people wonder whether the government 
shouldn't be doing something to, to integrate the Muslim community. And this has been one of my causes right from the beginning of my political awareness when, uh, when I founded the Salisbury Review in 1982. Um, the first thing that happened was that I got that famous letter from Ray Hannaford, headmaster in Bradford, about the difficulties he was having in maintaining a proper discipline in the classroom, given that the, the parents of the children were not committed to um, the integration of their children into the surrounding community. On the contrary, wanted always to take them back arbitrarily to Pakistan for this or that holiday um, and uh, to bring them up strictly in the Islamic faith, uh, not recognizing that there were any obligations to the surrounding community. And I think that I published that article and that was the beginning of, of all the attacks on me. But I've, I've always retained an interest in that question, how you reconcile Muslim communities to existence in a purely secular society like this, which is extremely a mature society with a, an education system and a legal order, both of which are founded entirely on secular principles, um, which have no equivalent, in, in obviously, in rural Pakistan. I think it's a really interesting question. And as I say, people are trying to prevent the discussion of it. Not everybody, I mean, there are Muslims who are very keen on opening this discussion. And I think it, if it's not opened at the highest level, this discussion will never occur. In the New Statesman interview, and I'm assuming this quote is accurate, you said about the attempt to unseat you in November. What surprised me was the kind of people who repeated these allegations. You expect people who spend their lives on Twitter to have this store of malice, but when it comes up in Parliament, as mm. it did, I was astonished, unquote. Do you think politicians in the UK and elsewhere have become more malicious in the past four or five years? I wouldn't have said they are more malicious, but I, I think less intelligent. Most serious and intelligent people would realise that you don't get your information from Twitter in order to pursue some important political matter. But they all have Twitter accounts, uh, you know, uh, and there's something childish and moronic about them now, which uh, is like entering a classroom of um, first-year university students who haven't yet learned how to put the iPhone down and pick up a book. What one does about that, I don't know. How do you account for the extraordinary influence wielded by, for the most part, left-wing Twitter outrage mobs? Why is it that the government responded so swiftly and did the bidding of the mob without giving you an opportunity to mm. explain what you'd said or to explain that some of these remarks had been taken out of context? Mm. Uh, why did they just instantly capitulate? Good question. Um, the, the obvious answer you know, that they are cowardly and easily intimidated and want to preserve their careers rather than to confront the truth is probably the right one. Um, but why are they cowardly? What are they to fear? That's, that is the great question. If our government, our conservative government, were properly in touch with the conservative feelings of the electorate and had a proper structured conservative philosophy with which to address those feelings, they wouldn't be afraid 
because they could call people together and say, look, they're attacking us again in this stupid way. Uh, let's go back to our principles and see, see what we think. And that's what the left do, of course. And uh, part of the problem in my life, I suspect, is that I have more or less uniquely among academic philosophers actually offered to provide that structured philosophy. So I'm a huge embarrassment to the Conservative Party. You know, uh, I shouldn't exist, really. To what extent do you think the climate of intolerance that seems to be sweeping the Anglosphere and some European countries to particularly France, to what extent is it due to a, a resurgence of hard-left ideology? I would be relieved if I thought it were due to that, because that would suggest there was some thinking behind it. The old hard left, as exemplified by the Soviet empire, if we're still allowed to use the word empire, was founded in an extremely serious uh, philosophical vision, the Marxist vision of history and of, the, and of the class divisions of contemporary society. It was always illuminating to study it and to confront it and to ask oneself the question, why, what is right in this, what is wrong in this, what should I think and what shouldn't I think? But that's gone. Uh, this this so-called leftist, intolerant leftist position, which resurges all the time in the identity culture, does not have such an intellectual base. It's not, it doesn't reflect on the nature of the human condition or human history in that way. I don't know uh, wh why it exists. It doesn't exist because of an intellectual argument. It exists, obviously, from deep emotional causes, which have to do with resentment, feeling excluded, and all that sort of thing, and then creating identities whereby to claim a new kind of inclusion. You know, there, are lots of, there are lots of deep psychological processes here, but they all seem to tend in the same direction, namely to target anybody who has the impertinence to defend his own inheritance because he's defending a, a form of belonging which seems to exclude them. So in the past, I've been um, criticised for comparing the current climate of intolerance in the West to the atmosphere in Soviet-era Eastern mm. Europe. So I wrote a piece recently for The Spectator talking about Milan Kundera's The Joke yeah. and it being quite topical because people can now lose their livelihoods in Britain and America for making mm. inappropriate jokes, just as the central uh, character yeah. in the novel does. But people have accused me and others who make that comparison of trivialising the suffering that dissidents in communist regimes endured and still have to endure. And as someone who was an anti-communist activist, who was detained in Czechoslovakia and deported in 1985, and who was awarded the Czech Republic's Medal of Merit by Václav Havel, um, what would you say the difference is? What are the points of similarity and the points of difference? The first thing it recognises that, that under the Soviet system, the, the Communist Party had a monopoly of power uh, and uh, uh, an ability to essentially punish any utterance that it didn't approve of. Whatever, and that meant any criticism of the system, of the party, and, and so on. Uh, and this power to punish was not so severe in Eastern Europe as it was in, in Russia, where of course you could end up in the gulag uh, for, for, for some slight grammatical fault. 
in, in Eastern Europe, you just, you just had to be careful about what you said and careful about if you wanted to publish anything, you'd have to clean it of any reference to the, um, uh, to the di dissident culture. And most of the people I knew in, in those countries, in Poland and Czechoslovakia and Hungary, um, were used to this and could, they published in another way. And this whole Samizdat uh, operation was very important to them. That's one of the things that I was involved in supporting. Uh, uh, and actually, the Samizdat press was uh, uh, in some ways freer than any press over here because it didn't have to um, acknowledge the, the um, prevailing orthodoxy here either. So you could say just about what you want. When we started our underground university in Prague and Brno, I was always astonished to visit and lecture there um, because uh, coming from a, a university in Britain, uh, I was just not used to the intellectual freedom that one had when one was working underground. It was, uh, uh, you know, I, I could never have said the things that I said uh, in those talks in Prague, uh, in, in uh, the London University where I worked. In his Sunday Times column on Sunday, um, the historian Neil Ferguson called for what he called a NATO mm. of intellectuals and academics to defend intellectual freedom. Um, the lesson of the Cold War is clear. He wrote, from now on, an attack on one of us must be considered an attack on all of us. Mm. I therefore invite all who believe in the fundamental human freedoms to sign a non-conformist academic treaty. Mm. I mean, do you think a lack of solidarity amongst dissident intellectuals is one of the reasons it's become so easy for left-wing Twitter mobs to pick them off? I'm sure that's true. Um, I mean, I was picked off long before the uh, Twitter, you know, uh, uh, as a result of that uh, scandal uh, uh, over the Salisbury Review. Mm -hmm. I was going to actually read back a quote to you about that, about mm. becoming the founding editor of the Salisbury Review yeah. in 1982. You said, uh, I think you wrote, it cost me many thousands of hours of unpaid labour, a hideous character assassination in private eye, three lawsuits, two interrogations, one expulsion, the loss of a university career in Britain, unending contemptuous reviews, Tory suspicion, and the hatred of decent liberals everywhere. And you concluded by saying, and it was worth it. <laughs> well, there you, you are. <laughs> I, I felt I had to conclude on a positive note, but I suspect <laughs> that last sentence would be deleted now. It's, it's quite salutary to be reminded that the current climate of intolerance is not new, no. um, that it's always been a characteristic of yes. the liberal West. But it seems, to be, it seems to have taken on a slightly new and different character. Yeah, I, I, this is something I'm really thinking about at the moment because it's not a, based on, on any firm intellectual foundations. It's not like the, the Soviet case, which although it was, of course, vulgarised and uh, made ridiculous by the people who, who were charged with imposing it, that censorship had grown out of a, a genuine intellectual movement um, which was still respected in my university, uh, uh, not respected in Eastern Europe, but one of the things that struck me when I used to travel to Poland and elsewhere to give lectures was that um, there uh, the, the Marxism was treated with contempt. And I would often try and 
say, you know, that there are, don't, don't forget there's elements, of, important elements in this, and you've mm -hmm. got to go back to it and trace it to its Hegelian roots, uh, because that was a real attempt to understand human communities. Then I go back home to, to London, where, of course, Marxism was what was taught. And the contrast is extraordinary. You know, uh, Marxism was imposed as a kind of uh, um, state orthodoxy there, but, but rejected completely uh, as an intellectual enterprise by the people. And it was somewhat the opposite uh, here. Do you think someone starting a similar magazine to the Salisbury Review today hmm. would suffer a similar level of consequence, <clears throat> or do you think it would be worse? It would be very different, because the Salisbury Review was aimed at educated people who read books and did think about these things in the long term and, uh, 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 as, uh, and philosophically. Uh, now, you, Twitter is not aimed at such people, obviously. It, is, um, it sinks to the lowest denominator, as everybody knows, and, uh, and rewrites the important issues of the day in a kind of uh, uh, staccato Mickey Mouse idiom that, that anyone can follow, usually with pictures, you know, um, it's about all at the level of that uh, tweet of, of um, George Eaton's that you referred to, uh, it, the sort of thing that could be grasped by an ordinary malicious child, uh, and uh, that's, that's new, um, and one has to try and understand where that comes from and why people brought up on that want to silence uh, the discussion among others who have brains, and that's what's happened in universities. You know, um, I, I, I would take the case, the recent case of John Finnis. This is very good illustration of the way in which the word homophobia is abused. Of course, John Finnis is the leading philosopher of law in this country. There's no doubt about it. He's a completely different level from everybody else. There was a letter of protest organised by graduate students in the law department to um, calling for his dismissal, signed by 400 people, because apparently he wrote against gay marriage uh, when it was first proposed, some, you know, some 20 or 30 years ago, I think, on behalf of the Catholic orthodoxy about, um, about this, what marriage is. And um, this was enough to describe him as homophobic, as though he had some revulsion against homosexuality as such. He may have done, you know, and I think he probably overstepped the marks. But uh, if you can't overstep the mark, you can't discuss. You've got to, be f you've got to feel free to say what you think. And <clears throat> you can then be rebuked and criticised, and you might want to change your mind. Changing your mind is the only sure sign that you've got one. Oxford hasn't in any way bent in response to this petition, and it's been fairly robust yes, until that's now good, yeah. uh, when, when, when confronted by Twitter outrage mobs. The same cannot be said of Cambridge, no. which extended the invitation to Jordan Peterson to give a series of mm. lectures about the Bible as a visiting fellow later this year, and then withdrew the invitation yeah. as soon as there were some protests. Were you shocked that, that Cambridge should have <coughs> behaved I, in quite such a cowardly way? I was, and um, touch on my old experience in Eastern Europe. Uh, when we founded a, our underground university, you, 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 couldn't, um, you couldn't get any institution in the West to authenticate the degrees that we wanted to give to people, because that was offensive to, to uh, foreign office policy and all the, all the rest. 
um, a policy of essentially of appeasement. But one place was prepared to endorse it, uh, these degrees, and that was the University of Cambridge Divinity School, because it was founded in the Middle Ages independently of the university and had its own right, uh, which had never been taken away, to give Cambridge degrees. So they said, yes, we'll do it. And they run it as a kind of theology university under aegis of which you could do all the other things that people wanted to learn. And recent, just before the Jordan Peterson case, the Czechs who'd gone through this out of gratitude um, created a plaque to put in the divinity school. So it had just been affixed to the wall, this record of the, of the, the wonderful freedom, gift of, of intellectual freedom that the divinity school in Cambridge had conferred on the, on the Czech and, and Slovak people. And then we heard the next day, or, or not quite the next day, but a few weeks on, uh, that um, it was precisely the divinity school that wasn't able to cope with the presence of Jordan Peterson. And um, so one, it was a kind of indication of just how, how things have gone. Yeah. Well, Sir Roger Scruton, thank you very much for talking to Quillette. Oh, thank you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.